You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employer's respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girlbomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girl Bomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you, and treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Chairman and CEO of the Oakview Group, the one and only Tim Lywicki. Tim, good to have you on the podcast. Bob, it's good to be here. It's good. Every day is good to be alive. So let's start with that. But in particular, it's a good day to be with you, my friend. Let's start with the basics. What exactly is the Oakview Group? So the, the Oakview Group was created about seven years ago between myself and my partner, Irving Azoff. And we wanted to think outside the box and be a positive disruption to the live industry, the facility industry. And in particular, our, our focus is on the music side of the business, although we obviously are strongly connected and now uh, deeply and heavily involved in sports as well. But it, it was taking my background and my experience with 20 years at AEG and before that, <clears throat> building uh, the Denver Nuggets and the Pepsi Center and the Minnesota Timberwolves and the Target Center, and essentially trying to um, redefine a way to build the business around building new facilities, renovating new facilities, representing current facilities, getting into the service business, the sales business, the food and beverage business. So it, it really is centered around the, the live entertainment experience with a heavy emphasis of the facilities. And although I have in the past created and been heavily involved in the promotional side of it, uh, this one's much more specific. And we, we strike partnerships with the promoters but we ourselves do not promote or seldom do we promote. So it's a core competency. It's highly focused. It's about facilities. It's about live entertainment. It's about the guest experience. And it's about trying to ultimately also build the next great generation of those live venues that people could go and enjoy their favorite artist at. What is the status of arenas around the world today? 
Well, arenas have been through the peaks and the valleys. Probably the, the greatest lows and the highest highs have been these last four or five years. So if you look at what happened to our industry, in particular during COVID, I'm not sure there was any, every industry was affected and some were terribly affected, but the live industry was essentially wiped out. We disappeared. And so if you looked at arenas, it was an amazing survival for arenas to try to figure out how we were going to weather that storm. And we had to figure out what we were going to look like when we came out of the storm. We we had a, just a whole new set of, of assumptions and risks and uh, operating challenges that we had to inherit coming out of COVID from air circulation. And look, who would have ever thought? I know in our case, with many of the arenas that we just recently built and opened, we were in the middle of building seven of these, seven during COVID. And I had to go back and every one of our projects ultimately had to be rebuilt with new experiences, um, with new challenges, and with um, a, a new way of dealing with germs and COVID and trying to figure out how we were going to now take something that so dramatically stopped all of, of, of our industry and its tracks and be able to convince people to come back and feel safe in a live environment in arenas and stadiums and theaters. And so we had to go back and rebuild and re-engineer and rethink our HVAC systems. And we installed a, a filtering system in all of our buildings that essentially traps and kills the bugs. And, and I never thought 10 years ago that this would become one of the highest priorities and the largest expenditure we would make when we're developing new arenas. But if you look at our, our MERV 13 filterization systems, we built a UBS arena and a Climate Pledge arena. They are massive, gigantic filter systems that essentially pump fresh air in and take air out. And as we're taking the air out, we now send that air through a bunch of filterization systems, trap the bad stuff, and then literally burn those germs on site. And so, again, we, we had to learn. We had to alter the way we think about safety, about customer convenience. We had to regain the confidence and the trust of the consumer that they could walk back into these buildings and be safe and not get sick. Um, and in particular, one, one thing that was unique about COVID is <clears throat> the scientists and, and all of the experts that we brought in to help us think through it, um, the ICE facilities in particular were, were a bit challenging because of the way air floats and air is trapped and hot air and cold air and the unique aspect of COVID and how that bug could hang in the air. It, it was suddenly a whole new set of rules and a whole new set of thinking on engineering and airflow that we had to adjust and quickly react to. So we came out of that. I think our industry did a phenomenal job of surviving. Um, we were not an industry that, that got bailed out. So the interesting thing is I didn't get one dollar of subsidies or um, we didn't we didn't get any of the COVID funds that the government ultimately parceled out. 
Um, I think there was a perception uh, why help billionaires, um, even though we're not billionaires, I think sports owners and facility owners in particular, uh, they, they weren't going to get any of the PPP money and we didn't. And so we had to go do this on our own. We had to survive on our own. And in the case of our company, we didn't lay anybody off. I didn't let anybody go. Uh, we didn't furlough anybody. I didn't ask anyone to take a pay cut. We, we had great faith that the society that we live in today and <clears throat> that the smart, brilliant people that were working on this on a daily basis, they were going to find a solution. And we had to be prepared to come out of this and hit the ground running. So we weren't going to shut everything down. We, we very much valued everybody that worked for us. We had literally tens of thousands of people that were employed by this company because of all the people working on the construction sites. And so instead of sitting here trying to figure out how to save money or how to go get subsidies or PPP funds, we did exactly the opposite, which is how do we go take care of our people? How do we create safe work sites today? How do we continue constructing our seven new arenas? How do we ultimately survive this? But then how do we come out of this at the right time and be better for what we're going to learn in, in the next couple of years? I'm not sure at the time we thought it was a couple of years, Bob. We were hoping it was a year, but it wasn't a year. We're, we're just now, just now getting back to what I would say is business as usual and normal. And so, um, hugely challenging for us. Um, life lessons, uh, character in particular, a very, very strong character building moment for our industry and for our company. And I, I will say in, in the <clears throat> roughly 40 plus years I've been doing it, I, I probably lost more sleep and had more nights where I'd wake up in the middle of the night thinking, my God, I'm not going to make it through this. Our company's not going to make this, make it through this. We're, we're ultimately not going to be able to get these arenas open. I'm not going to be able to ultimately get people to buy naming rights or sponsorships or suites. We're never going to see business as usual again. You, you have, I call them the demons and I never had the demons as much as we did during COVID. And yet, God works in mysterious ways. We came out of that and now we've had the best year in the history of live entertainment. And if you see the pent up demand and you see what Elton John just did, what Taylor Swift is doing, what Ed Sheeran's doing, what Coldplay's doing. Um, if you see the success of arena shows now and Harry Styles, just shocking what Harry Styles has pulled off here. And, and by the way, that, that young man is my hero because he stayed through that tour during COVID and dealt with all the issues he had with uh, the bubble, with his crew, with his band, with safety, with people getting sick. And, and he fought through it in the middle of COVID, kept his tour going, and the poor guy is still out touring. <laughs> and so huge, huge admiration for the industry. And in particular, the year that we've just had, and the passion that the fans have to get out and live life. Uh, we're seeing that and we're all benefiting from that, but also the artist and, and how resolute the industry was at giving people reason to come back together and to celebrate, giving people an opportunity to be happy to, to go back to these public uh, places 
and and be able to forget about all of the things and all of the demons and all of the problems that we were dealing with. I think it was our finest moment in the music industry and the live entertainment industry. And I am absolutely proud to be a part of it, but also hugely grateful back to the fans that that they came back and supported the industry, our facilities, and the artists the way they have. And in particular, we understand now people, we everyone appreciates life now. When you go through something like that, you're going to go live the rest of your life and you're going to live it every day and you're not you're not going to take it for granted and music and sports but especially music a huge part of that and i think that's why our best years are directly ahead of us and we're going to continue to enjoy this surge uh in in our business that we've seen this past year let's go back uh to the hvac and the arenas one of the components of ovg's business is managing and having relationships with other businesses. You said you have seven new arenas that you reconfigured for HVAC. How about the arenas that you consult? What did they do? So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, you know, what, what I love about this and, and the format that you've created and, and the times I've listened into all of your guests is the ability to to have time to tell stories because after all that's actually what we all do right musicians write songs and tell stories and you give us an opportunity to tell stories about our industry and how it affects people and in our particular case how we survived uh, the greatest challenge in the history of our industry i was and it was the very early stages of of covid so ironically ju just by chance if you look at when COVID broke out, there were three or four hot spots where it first hit, where we're all going, what is this thing? So one of them was Seattle and the nursing homes, unfortunately, just terrible what happened there. But that was the first place in the United States where suddenly you're like, wait a minute, something's wrong here. This is serious. Second place was the town in New York, just outside of New York City where it was a, a temple and a congregation and an actual event that became a super spreader event. First, one of those things that we've seen, no one quite understood super spreader until that. And in the third place that, that just got absolutely hammered and was ground zero, I think, for what, what it was, how quickly it was spreading and how many people it was killing was Milan. I happened to be in all three of those places in that one to two week period of time when all of this started popping. So I was in Seattle and suddenly you, you began to hear stories about um, people in retirement homes that, that were getting sick and dying. And then people not wanting to go into the retirement homes and trying to figure out how to get the people out of the retirement homes. And, and you're scratching your head going, man, this, this, is, this is bad. What happens if this spreads? And it did. And then I went to New York, and sure enough, the just that one event and, the, and that one particular temple, and then how that reached out instantly. And you're like, oh, my God, this thing is highly contagious. Th this is a problem. And then literally the day I went into Milan, we had a meeting with the mayor and the Olympic Committee, and the meetings get canceled. We're sitting in there in the square outside the great cathedral in the center of Milan. And they closed the cathedral down 
Now, I'm a I'm a Catholic boy and grew up in a church and, and went to Catholic school. And I know when they start closing the churches down, there's trouble. <laughs> and so I'm like, this is not good. And so as we immediately changed plans and went to the airport to try to get back home, the airport started shutting down and they were taking everyone's temperature. And by the way, it was not a real exact science on how they were testing people and taking temperature. And so you you looked at it and said, this is a shit show. They, they don't have this figured out. This isn't working, whatever they're trying to do. And by the way, they don't really have a method of trying to figure out who might be sick and who might not be sick. And they're putting all these people on airplanes. This is a disaster. And that's when I knew. I came back home and told my wife, this is the most serious problem we will ever experience in our lifetime. So I was... I was on the front line and I'm like, I, I'm really, really worried about this. So I called up a friend of mine who happens to be one of our best partners at UBS Arena in New York with, with us and the Islanders. And um, I talked to the president of the hospital and said, Michael, what is this? Can, can you help me understand this? And he said, he said, this will be the most contagious, deadly outbreak you will ever see in your lifetime i said serious and he said this is really bad and i said well explain to me how how does this transmit itself i mean what's going on here and and we in particular he told me we got a, a massive problem because we people don't understand it the government thinks it's touching it's not touching it's in the air and it's circulating in the air and i'm like well if it's circulating in the air, tell me, how are you doing that with your emergency rooms? And by the way, how's it getting out of the emergency rooms? If it's circulating in the air, don't you shut those systems down in your emergency rooms? And he said, it's getting into the ventilating system. And he said, Tim, it's circulating through the whole hospital. And he said, we're getting people sick in other wings of the hospital where there are no COVID patients, none of the COVID personnel that are working on those patients because we think it's in the air system and it's traveling by air now bob when i heard that that was probably i, I gotta say the most dreadful shocking bit of news I've, I've ever had with the exception of uh the death of some of my family members i i was stunned when he told me that and i said michael if that's the case we're screwed. I mean, how do I build arenas? And he was the one that said, you, you got to give some serious consideration to the way you're treating your air handling systems and arenas. I'm like, Michael, we got 20,000 people in our arenas. Do you understand the magnitude of me trying to figure out how to clean my air up? And he said, I do. And you're going to have to figure it out. And that's when everything changed, Bob. That That's when suddenly... I had, we went back to our engineers and, and literally after I got off that call, um, I, I went back um, from the advice that Michael at Northwell gave me and I called my engineers in Dallas that were doing the air handling system for all of our buildings. But in particular, our New York building, our Austin building and our Seattle building that were all under construction. And I said, look, I, I just had a really smart guy that I trust tell me this thing's in the air. And it's circulating and infecting people within the air, which means air circulation. 
And and he got shocked and said, are you serious? And I said, yeah, I think that's what this thing is. Tell me what that means. And he said, well, you, you don't, you're not building a system that ultimately deals with that in any of your buildings. That's not what we're putting in your system. We're, we're bringing fresh air in and we're taking air out, but we're not doing anything ultimately to test the quality of that air or kill anything that's in the air that may be coming or going. You don't have filterization systems like that. And I said, well, he mentioned this thing called MERV-13. He said, yeah, MERV-13 is what we put into like emergency rooms and operating rooms and hospital, Tim. It's the highest filterization system you could possibly have to not only monitor your air, but clean it and kill the germs on the spot. I said, well, how complicated is it? And could we put it in an arena? And he said, you can't put it in an arena. I said, well, I think we're going to have to figure out how to put it in an arena. And to their credit, Ed and his team worked for about two weeks straight uh, around the clock and came back to me two weeks later and said, I think we figured out how to do it, but you're going to have to start fresh with all of your ventilation systems. And you're going to have to build giant, giant plants with this filterization system and suck everything into this filterization system. And then, Tim, you're going to have to figure out how to burn it and kill the germs at a high heat rate. And I'm like, all right, let's figure it out. Now, the complication, Bob, that came out of that process for Steve Collins, who's my president and develops all of our arenas, was profound to try to figure out space. And we had to start fresh and we had to change our plans. And we were in the middle of constructing our arenas and had to change on, on the fly. What was even more interesting is the MERV 13 filterization system they were proposing to add to our HVAC system was driven by ultimately gas that would come in and burn and kill the, the the bad guys, the germs. But the problem with that is I happen to have a carbon neutral arena in Seattle. We don't use gas. We use solar power and electricity. And went back to the engineers and said, I can't put gas in there. And he said, there, there's not enough electrical power in order to generate the kind of heat you're going to have to generate to kill the bug and only gas works. And I'm like, Ed, you're going to have to go back to the drawing board and figure out how to make it work through electrical power. Cause that's all we're pulling into our arena. We are, we pulled our gas lines out already. So, so Bob halfway through building what became climate pledge arena, we made the pledge to be carbon neutral and I pulled all my gas lines out and we went a hundred percent of the energy that we utilize at Climate Pledge Arena is solar-powered energy. So we had to refigure. Not only do we have to rebuild our systems, we had to go back to the engineers and refigure out how to get enough heat in order to kill the bad the germs without using gas. So it was just that. I mean, honestly, it, it. I'm so proud of our team that we were able to turn on a dime like that. And, and come up with new ideas and new ways to keep our people in our arenas safe. And then we had to go do what everyone else had to do, which is how do I create bubbles? How do I ultimately, and it was funny when I talked to Michael at Northwell, he, he said, you know, those guys, those ghostbuster guys you have going in and spraying your seats. He said, it's all BS. Said it doesn't work. Said, go send them all in. He said that, that doesn't, it's Tim, it's not touch. It's here. And we had to rethink everything we were doing. So then we pull calls together, 
Bob, back to your question. And we'd have our arena alliance and the 29 arenas on there. And we brought these experts on and said, I, you need to hear this. You need to understand what we're learning and what we're dealing with. And they were all shocked. But to their credit, a lot of them, uh, for example, the State Farm Arena and Steve and his team down there, unbelievably diligent at how they jumped in and dove into this to try to learn what it is we're dealing with and how do we correct it. And so, shocking moment, uh, but but an absolutely brilliant moment because as is typical for our industry in particular, we shared, we communicated, <clears throat> we explored. There, there was no territory. Whatever we learned, we shared with everybody else. And then we went out and we tried to deal with the politicians and warn them what we were dealing with and ask them for help. And the only request we ever made to Washington was, can you give us subsidies to help us pay for the systems that we're going to have to now re-engineer and redeploy in all of our arenas? So this is millions, tens of millions of dollars in some cases that we're all going to have to spend. Can you help us? Uh, they didn't. So proud of the industry that we rolled up our sleeves and again, not only found creative solutions, but we paid for them ourselves. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Okay, let's pull the lens all the way back, not solely about the OVG group. Uh, how many arenas are there in the world? To what degree is there room for more arenas? And what is the state of the infrastructure out there? 
Great question. So there are thousands of arenas in the world. Um, funny, as you look at this industry and you look at thousands of arenas and you look at the life cycle of an arena, which is not, you know, I, I just came back from Europe and I had the great privilege and uh, great opportunity to go explore the Coliseum again. And I've been to the Coliseum a couple of times, but I'm fascinated by the, the genius of the architectural marvel that is the Coliseum. And, and to this day, it still inspires me because that's where our industry started. And, and to this day, we still use many of the architectural designs and the genius of that particular building and everything that we do on every design and every building we, we go develop. And so I spent time there. And then we also went to the Vatican and, and saw the genius of the architects and the artists uh, that, that took the, the, the great um, parts of the Vatican, and including the, the Grand Cathedral and the Sistine Chapel, and just looking at uh, Michelangelo and, and some of the people that ultimately were responsible for thinking through um, the way that they designed that chapel and, and the way they, they, they thought about architect and they thought about paintings and they thought about finishes and they thought about um, the experience that people um, have when they go through those places like the Coliseum. It really is shocking. And it, every time I go there, it changes my view of arenas. But, but what you begin to understand is from there, from those two buildings, ironically, came huge inspiration, huge knowledge, and um, a huge amount of, of what affects our industry today was really started with the Coliseum in particular. So there's thousands of arenas around the world. But if you really talk about <clears throat> our e-industry, there's probably 250 of these things. Right. So it's it's kind of crazy. It's a very big world out there. And there's billions and billions of people on the planet. But there's only probably 250 arenas that I would consider to be an A-class arena and even fewer stadiums. And when you think about in particular in our country, the demand that that is created in stadiums with the NFL or Major League Baseball. And in the rest of the world, this little sport called football, soccer, and, and the impact that's had, what we forget, especially in North America, is we have lots of new arenas and new stadiums, brilliant, brilliant stadiums like SoFi and Allegiant. <clears throat> but then as you get into Europe, and even more in particular, when you get into Africa or South America or Asia, there are very, very few new arenas right now. And so in the last couple of years, when we've opened up seven, we've opened up the only seven that have been built in those two years. So it was OVG with seven arenas and, and no other arenas were getting built partially because of COVID. So what you realize is thousands of arenas, most of them aren't very good. Most of them are very old. There are hundreds of arenas that are kind of driving our industry as we know it today. But there are not very many arenas like we have in North America and the rest of the world. It is pretty shocking. But 
therein lies the opportunity, which is we're, we're going to see a huge explosion and a huge opportunity to build these world-class arenas and take what we've learned here on how to build them and the technology and the acoustics and the experience and the premium and now transfer that and be able to take that with us everywhere we go in the world. And if you don't think the industry is changing, then go look at what Jim Dolan's building with the Sphere because it's revolutionary. It's masterful. It, I don't know how the heck he came up with all of this. Not sure how the hell you pay for it. But what I know is he's going to change our industry forever. And the minute that opens up in September, we will never be the same. And so thousands of arenas, most of them highly outdated, most of them ineffective compared to where the customer expectations and conveniences, the artist expectations and conveniences, the technology, the acoustics, the engineering, the, the demand is going to be immense for new arenas going forward. And we keep on reinventing the experience. So we spent $1.1 on Climate Pledge. Jim's spending billions of dollars on the Sphere. Uh, Steve Ballmer spending billions of dollars on the Intuit Arena. And if you look at how quickly it's changing because of technology, and you look at how quickly it's changing because of the customer experience, just things like engineering and acoustics and LED, um, we're in the we're in a revolutionary moment in time. So even though there's thousands of arenas, there's very few new arenas outside of North America. And yet the demand has never been greater. And I think you're going to see the greatest amount of development of arenas in the history of the industry in these next 20 years. Okay. In Los Angeles, Irving took the forum and turned it into a music-only building. Uh, there are no sports there. Now, my understanding is you're doing something similar from scratch in Manchester, England. There are reports that at the on the island with the islanders in the new building there, you had specific things you added to make the sound, although it's a hockey arena, make the sound better for music. So, as opposed to the 60s and 70s when they were multi-use buildings, do you need a multi-use building to make the economics work? And if you do have a multi-use building, how do you make it a good experience for concert goers? Well, first of all, <clears throat> you, you have summarized in one question uh, what's taken me seven years to figure out as a company. So, <laughs> um, the forum when, when Irving and Jim did the forum. So I was at AEG at the time. We had Staples Center downtown. We owned the forum for some period of time. But quite frankly, I didn't have the vision or the foresight they did to understand the demand in the marketplace and how we needed another music venue in particular. And we should have paid more attention to it at AG. Um, and that I'll put that's my fault. And so we we ended up selling the forms of the church. The church then sold it to Jim. And Jim was very intelligent about coming in and realizing. How do I go create the same experience that we created at the garden for music with a low ceiling, great acoustics, get rid of the signage, get rid of the scoreboard. I don't care about sports. We're not going to do sports. I don't care. We're not going to have an ice plant. We're not going to do hockey. We're not going to do basketball. I don't care about any of that. We're just going to be phenomenal at music. And he spent a couple hundred million dollars 
And from that, by the way, came the spear. So if you ask Jim Dolan, what he'll tell you is what they created at the forum spurred him on to the thinking that eventually is the sphere. And if, if when the sphere opens, I encourage everyone to go see it. It is a absolute, you want to talk about an entrepreneurial spirit and an entrepreneurial moment. God bless Jim for what he's done there. It is going to change our industry forever. And so the great debate that came out of that. So, and by the way, it's a debate I have with Jim. So Jim tells me, you should never build another arena. You should only build spheres. And I'm like, well, I get it, but you know, I can't afford to build spheres. I got to figure out a way to pay for it because by the way, of the seven arenas we built, we didn't take one penny from the public sector on any of those seven arenas. And most of the arenas we built and then gave back to the city. So we privatized everything, which means we had to pencil this out. And figure out how naming rights, sponsorship, premium ticket sales, food and beverage, parking can pay for the privatization of these particular buildings. In some cases, Seattle is an example. You're going to build one arena and you got to make it work for hockey and you got to make it work for basketball when we get the NBA back. But you got to make it perfect for music. And that was a problem up there. So not only did the old key arena kind of have that huge roof. There was kind of a pyramid at the top of it. So the sound of a concert would go up into the roof and bounce around a few times and then bounce back down. It was, I always used to tell people, Earl's Court is my favorite place to go for a concert because I get to hear the band three times. Because the first time and then the second time with the echo and the third time the echo from the echo. And so uh, we had to go recreate the music experience in Seattle. And what we did is we learned from the forum as well. And from an engineering standpoint, we figured out how to build clouds in our ceiling with acoustical treatment and drop them and have panels. So in Seattle, our panels open and close based on where we know music is coming from and the sound and the reverb and the bass compared to where sports noise comes from. And so in a very, can they both work together and be aligned they can and here's how you do it so if you think about creating the greatest environment humanly possible for sports and you think about the crowd noise which is what you want to amplify and keep in the building so that you create that wonderful environment and so many great sports facilities you, you understand that that crowd noise comes from the bowl not not the ice or not the court it comes from the bowl so as that crowd noise goes up you want it not to be trapped and killed in the roof. You want it to bounce in the roof and come back down. That's what creates that intimidating experience in many arenas today. But for concerts, you do want to kill it. You want to trap it and take, make sure there's no echo, no reverb. And, and that means you've got to build acoustical systems in your roof and your walls and anything that's a surface that stares at the speakers. And so our engineers came in and figured out a system in the roof where it allows sports noise to bounce, but they knew where the speakers were going to be positioned with music. And we knew how to take the baffling system and actually kill the, the noise, the echo, and the reverb as that noise is coming out of the speakers. We had the ability to take our acoustical panels and, and, hang them 
and curve them in a way where they're directed at where the speakers are going to be hung for concerts. So you can make it work together. You can build a great venue for sports, IUBS, or by the way, Moody Center, or uh, what we did at Climate Pledge, and, and have an intimidating environment for sports, but a perfect environment for acoustics. And for me, the greatest critic in the world on acoustics are the artists because they got to live with it. And they're the ones that hear it, by the way, they're the ones that have to deal with bad acoustics more than anybody. And if you talk about an artist that really does care about the experience for their fans, Don Henley is top of the list, in my opinion, of an artist that really will critique you and give you feedback on good experiences and bad experiences. And the great thing for Don is he noticed in all of our buildings, including the renovation in Baltimore, he knew the work that we put in there on acoustics because he felt it and heard it on the stage. And he knew the difference in our buildings with the acoustical treatment that Irving and I had committed to compared to other buildings. And so same with Springsteen. He he really loved the acoustic. He so the to one of the great stories in my life, and as as I told um Sir Bruce, he's been running around in my head for about 25 years and I can't get rid of him. So when we opened up Staples Center, Bruce agreed to open the building for us. And we were truly honored because, you know, when you're in the business for 45 years, Bruce Springsteen is God. <laughs> he just is. <laughs> so I'm like, Bruce Springsteen is going to open our building. Coolest thing ever. And we had him for a couple of nights. And Rob Light from CAA did, did a favor and intervened and convinced Bruce to do it for us. And so Bruce came the first night, never forget it. And, you know, huge success for us. Really cool to have Bruce open the building. And he gets on stage. And after one song or two songs, he said, hey, all you people up there and all those boxes, why don't you come on out and join the rest of us? And I'm like, did he just say that? And then the person I was with said, yeah, he just said that. I'm like, oh, shit. <laughs> and I was embarrassed. I'm like, oh, my God. And then you could tell he was a little miffed that there were a lot of people in those suites having parties that weren't part of the concert. And you can't do that to an artist. That's a mistake. And I instantly realized three levels of suites. That was the moment I realized I made a terrible mistake with three levels of suites here. I did not think about the artist like I should have. And so I went to see him afterwards, after the concert, and thanked him for opening the building. And then he said something to me that has run in my head for 25 years, which is, <clears throat> you know, Tim, I, I know you put a lot of love into the building, but I like hot, sweaty halls. And I walked away going, geez, I just got uh, like undressed by the boss. This is not good. <laughs> and it stuck with me. So when, when, I, when we started OVG, ironically, the very question you asked has been running around my head all these years, which is, can we build an arena that is phenomenal for music, acoustically perfect for the artists and their fans so that they feel like they're right there next to each other? And can we make it so it's a phenomenal advantage for the home team for basketball and hockey when you're going to share the building? Sometimes, like Manchester, we're going to build the perfect building for music because I'm going to do 150 nights of music every year. So I, I don't need to worry about an ice hockey team or a basketball team. But other times, like Seattle, 
to cover a billion dollar bet, we got to have an NHL team and we want an NBA team. So it all has to work. There are very smart people that have perfected this. If you are willing to spend the money necessary to build the acoustical treatment in order to make it perfect. And that's what we've done in the buildings. And so when Bruce played, he was very kind and did two nights for us at UBS this last tour. It was the only two nights he did. He did one night every place else. So really cool because he had kind of committed to help us open the building, but then COVID hit and he didn't forget us. So remarkable him, John, and the whole team at, at, at Bruce's camp. Phenomenal how loyal they are to their fans and to our business. I have huge respect for them, for the way they treat people. It's just so refreshing to be with people that are that down to earth and and that loyal to the music, the experience, the fans, and the building. And so they came back and did two at UBS, and they told me the acoustics were perfect. They said, you did a great job here. Good on you. And they talked about Moody Center and how what a cool experience that was in Austin. And they talked about Climate Pledge and how great that was and how unbelievable that we were able to build a carbon neutral arena. They cared. They actually knew the whole shtick. I'm like, God, you guys sound like a, a, a walking brochure for OVG. So by the time they got to Baltimore, he was going to play the baseball stadium and instead did us a favor. And they helped us open the arena. They were one of the first nights in the renovated arena because he cared about Baltimore. He cared about us spending a quarter of a billion dollars in a city that some in the media, not you, but some in the media, Fox, trashed, absolutely destroyed the city, absolutely buried it, absolutely treated the people that are a part of that community with huge disdain for their own political purposes. And, and most of it is absolutely untrue. The city is not burning up in flames. People are not being shot when they come out of their homes. Bruce knew that. And he knew that that city had been treated unfairly. And they they need people to come lift them up. Uh, our partner in Baltimore is Pharrell. And Pharrell talks about steps, giving people that first step on the ladder and helping them get up. And then they're going to go the rest of the way up on their own if you can help them on that first step. But you got to build the ladder. You got to build the first step. Bruce got it. Great news is he came in and said, the building's phenomenal. And it's it's amazing what you did here. Good on you, because most people wouldn't have taken this chance. Those They proved two things, Bob. First, you can build arenas that ultimately are advanced enough to be acoustically perfect for concerts and work for sports. And second of all, what a phenomenal industry we all get the chance to work in. When you get have those moments, and one, I, I have stopped Bruce from running in my head for 25 years, finally. And number two, guess what? I learned from him and understood the mistakes I had made. And I vowed to myself I'd never make those mistakes again, and I'd be smarter and better because I listened to what the artists ultimately want. And so when Don Henley tells me where we're good and where we're bad, I listen because Don Henley, in my opinion, is one of the great artists of our generation. And I care about how he cares about his fans and the experience he wants people to have in an Eagle show. Same with Bruce. I think that's the great thing about our building or our industry. And it's what you asked at the very beginning, which is the industry shares. The industry will learn from one another. The industry will try to get better from one another. And it's it, the passion that an artist has, that we have, that the fans have, if you could kind of combine that and align that together, 
then great things are going to come out of that. Great musical experiences, great venues and stadiums and arenas and festivals. But that that's part of what I think is encouraging about our industry right now is we are building better arenas and theaters and stadiums. The experiences are 10 times better than they used to be. And people are having a lot more fun at our concerts when they come into this environment because we ultimately have figured out how to make it a better experience for them. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City Featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Okay, a couple of things. I remember when Bruce opened the building and he talked about the acoustics negatively, but you bring up the uh, luxury boxes, the suites, of which there are three tiers and seats above in what is now called crypto. Um, So what'd you learn about how many luxury boxes you can build and how to build them to satiate the artist? Well, again, I made a mistake in Staples Center. We built too many. We built 220 of them on three levels. And it acoustically wasn't a great experience. And it, sorry, it isn't today. I know they'll, they'll say that's because I compete with them. It has nothing to do with that. That's just a fact. And so when you look at the forum, it takes you two minutes to figure out, well, why are, why is almost every artist going to the forum and not going to crypto? Guess what? The forum's a phenomenal experience for an artist and their fans. There are no suites, none, right? So everybody's right in that bowl, tight to the artist, tight to the stage, tight to the experience. The acoustics are perfect. There's no bounce back. There's no reverb. Uh, that's what I learned is guess what? It does matter. And so, okay. Well, we so like when you build something from scratch that also has sports, uh, I think you have to have luxury boxes. How do you decide how to build them and how many? 
So I think the garden to me is still the greatest building in the world. It still to me is the cathedral for arenas and sports and live entertainment. And I still learn from the garden every time I go there. I learn from the Coliseum every time I go there. So what, what we figured is make the bowl pure, but still build premium experiences that will not take away from that experience or the acoustics within the bowl. So what you see now in all my buildings, we, we still have suites. We have 56 suites total at uh, Climate Pledge Arena, but it's one level and the seats are all out. So we, we have taken the seats and extended them over the lower bowl. So they actually go into the bowl and the people are sitting out in that experience. And then we tuck the suites and the, the common area, the kitchen area and the food area. We tuck them back further and kind of hide them. And we only have roughly 40 of those on that one level at Climate Pledge Arena. So we minimized it. And then we build bunker suites down low, but the bunker suites are completely hidden. You don't see them. They're in the back hallway. And so you, you come down a tunnel, a vomitory, by the way, from the Coliseum, and you walk down that vomitory and you come into the seats down low from your suite, but, but they're disconnected. And so what we're beginning to learn is with our clubs, with our suites, with our premium areas, put them on the outside of the skin of the building, put it, put them so they don't disrupt the bowl, put them so that there's not the haves and the have nots still have premium experiences, bring them out to the seats, but design it in a way where the flow of the bowl is perfect. And you don't have three levels of suites and three levels of glass and three levels of people make a noise where everything's bouncing off of those suites and that glass. So we, we still have suites. We still have premium. We have, four or 5,000 premium seats in most of the buildings we're building today. But what we've done is we've taken the clubs and integrated them into the concourse, not the bowl. And then we use the seating in the bowl as the opportunity to fulfill those, those commitments for the premium seat holders in great locations. But we don't disrupt the flow of the bowl, the acoustics of the bowl, the experience of the fans by ultimately building three levels of suites. Okay, you mentioned the experience. In the old days, you'd go to the arena, there'd be hot dogs and cold pizza, okay? And, but what we know is if the act is hot enough, doesn't matter what is going on, people will pay the price. So, this investment in the experience, does it pay dividends financially? Uh, so, great question. So, Again, I'll tell you another story that probably answers it well. And so it, it, despite what people think as to the competition between OVG and ABG, yes, we compete. But I still have great respect for Phil Anschutz because he wrote the checks and he took a huge risk on investment on Staples Center and LA Live and uh, in particular, the O2. So at the time, building an arena in London privately crazy idea building an arena privately in london underneath a tent crazier building it underneath a tent and not having the ability to go down because there's a thing called the thames river are up because the tent is a national historic landmark and so it's like how the hell are you going to go do that 
but it was a daring, bold bat by Phil to provide the money and to the team that we put together to design it and build it stunningly brilliant as to, hey, here's an idea. Let's build the arena under the tent and create the greatest arena outside of the United States and we'll pay for it privately and it'll work. And again, 90, there's an old saying, Bob, I have, which is <clears throat> there are people that want to participate in the parade. There are some people that want to lead the parade. And then there's a segment of people that just want to pee on the parade. And there were a lot of people that wanted to pee on the O2 idea. And everyone was telling us what a mistake this was. <clears throat> Partially, why are you building an arena in London? Why are you building an arena in London that's music specific? There's the Earl's Court. There's the Wembley Arena. We don't need another arena. We're fine. <clears throat> so one night, Irving brings the Eagles over. This is, you know, in the story of my partner, Irving and Tim, it, it, there's parts of our life where we were getting along quite well. And then there were parts of our life where we wouldn't talk to each other <laughs> and we didn't like each other very much. So we've, we've seen it all. This was good, Tim and Irving, right? So Irving brought the Eagles over to the old Wembley Arena. And I went out to say hello to Irving and the band. And I'm working on um, getting the O2 started and built this is at the very early stages of us making the deal for the millennium dome and and i you know during the concert i go walk the concourse to go see okay how are they doing here how do they do food how do they and i go walk to the one of the stands and i say to the woman can i i'll take a beer and she goes okay so she goes back to this like crazy ass antique machine and presses a button and she's pouring 24 beers at one time on this machine and she presses the button and it begins to fill up the 24 cups but as she comes away from pressing the button she has one of the cups and knocks the half full cup of beer over and immediately panics and stops the points that puts the stop machine and then now she's sitting there with 23 half empty cups and she's pondering well, what the hell do i do now and so she gets a fresh cup puts it down where she knocked the old cup over presses the button and then starts to fill the beer up but then she realizes well wait a minute the machine thinks i'm pouring a fresh cup of beer instead of a half a cup of beer and now she's panicked because there's beer running everywhere from these cups she doesn't know what the hell to do and i'm looking at her like this is the worst i've ever seen <laughs> so then she gives me the beer and I drink the beer and I'm like, oh my God, this beer tastes awful. And I realized, first of all, it's warm. And second of all, and I asked her, I'm like, ma'am, I'm trying not to be considerate because, you know, after all, they think we're ugly, stupid Americans to begin with, and they were mostly correct. And I'm like, where, where's this beer coming from? She says, oh, it's, you know, the tap room. Says, well, where's the tap room? She says, oh, it's downstairs. I'm like, are you telling me you got a line that runs from that stupid ass 24 person, 24 cup machine all the way through the concrete downstairs to some back of room commissary where you got all the kegs of beer stacked? She said, yeah, and it's not refrigerated. And what I realized is two things. One, it was, it was an absolute stupid way to serve a customer. And two, what happens is those lines that have beer in them get polluted 
And there's a lot of bad stuff in those lines, including mildew. Because remember, there's long periods of time where there's no one in the building. And it gets hot during the summertime. And they didn't have air conditioning back in the day at Wembley. And so I realized that this is the worst cup of beer I've ever had. And a place where they absolutely love to drink beer, that's the stupidest thing I've ever seen. We got to fix that. And so the idea of building in refrigerators at every concession stand and serving clean beer where we had a minimal line was revolutionary, revolutionary at the O2. And everyone was happy because they were getting a really cold cup of beer. And by the way, they weren't having to worry about a polluted line that the beer was traveling from. And so we knew we were going to succeed because we knew that uh, the threshold and the expectations were very low and we were going to do something extraordinary. Ironically, now that we see the evolution, back to one of your earlier questions, the evolution of the experience is dramatically different today than it was 20 years ago when we started building the O2. So the O2 is old, by the way. And it's outdated, in my opinion, because they haven't put money into it to update it. So Manchester, why do we go into Manchester where there's an existing arena? And by the way, Manchester used to be, and you know this, Manchester was a top five market forever for live ticket sales. And the old Men Arena was a top two or three arena in the entire world for music. It sold more tickets and did more concerts than any other building in the world with the exception of maybe the garden, the forum, and occasionally one of the buildings in London. But it was that successful. When we went to Manchester, OVG, we went through exactly what you were asking about, which is the evolution of the experience and how is it going to change? What have we learned that ultimately could build a better arena? and a better experience for artists and fans that fans will pay for. And what we do is the AO arena was built for 56 million pounds for the Commonwealth Games. All public, by the way, is a public building and it was built for sports. It was never built for music. And they've never put a penny into it since. They're just now putting money into it because here we come. And so they're like, oh, we better put some money into it so we can compete. Too late. Can't put a Band-Aid on a gapping wound. Now when we're spending... 365 million pounds, so call it 500 million U.S. to build the greatest arena ever built anywhere outside of the U.S. And we did it because the experience at AO is bad. It's not good for the customer. It's not good for the artist. We we have multiple artists when we go to them and say, what is it you'd like us to do back a house at Co-op Live that, that you will love and that will be meaningful for you in the experience? And we happen to have Harry Styles, who's our partner. Harry has strong opinions on the experience for the artist and for his fans. And he has been actively involved in the design of the building. And what we know is that our building, when we open it up in April, is going to be shocking for the industry internationally because they've never seen anything like this. Far better, far better than the AO experience. They'll never be able to catch us. No disrespect. It's too good. And much better than the O2 because we now have 20 years worth of Jim Dolan and the Forum and Jim Dolan and the Spear and Tim Lywicki and Irving Azoff at Climate Pledge Arena with Todd Lywicki and, and David Bonderman and UBS Arena and Scott Malkin 
uh, as our partner, the thinking, the new ideas, the new air systems, the new acoustical treatment, the new system of creating premium without disrupting the bowl. We have 32 clubs and, and restaurants and private spaces at Co-op Live 32, but they're all buried on the outside of the building, not the inside of the building. That's why we get 24,000 people into that building and it's a hot, sweaty hall. So when Bruce goes in there and plays it, he's going to look around and go, my God, they're all right on top of me. This is fantastic. I love this experience. We've had 20, 30 years worth of evolution on how to make the experience better. And this is the first arena that's going to be built outside of the United States that's taking all of that thinking and all of that evolution and now putting it to work. And it's just being entrepreneurial, listening to what people want, trying to understand your competition, and then building a better mousetrap. Okay, moving on to naming rights. Certainly, if you go back to the 60s and prior, it was Yankee Stadium, Shea Stadium. There was no money involved. That changed. Yankee Stadium is still Yankee Stadium. The Mets play in uh, City Field. Question is, let me try to break this down a little bit. All of a sudden, it got to the point where the audience was feeling, okay, it's Jiffy Lube Arena. They just paid a price. It's got nothing to do with the music. In addition, the name keeps changing. Is this just a giant middle finger to the fans? Because not everybody goes regularly. They don't even know where the halls are. I mean, even in this business, we use some of these names change so much, you can't remember what city. Just to add a little add-on to that. A yeah. number of these buildings are sponsored by companies that have a short shelf life. They've gone bankrupt or they're crypto companies. In some cases, the the arena got paid there was an advance etc so what's really going on in the whole naming rights sphere well so ironically it's a necessary evil when you privatize buildings it, you you need to figure out a way to create revenue streams that are going to be able to help you pay down your debt and get a rate of return on the equity that you invest in these things and so but there there's a way to do it well, and then there's a way to do it kind of sloppy. So a lot of people have done it. Again, a lot of credit to MSG and Jim. Um, it's still the garden. It's presented by Chase, and he 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 actually makes more money off the Chase deal than almost any other naming rights deal in the entire industry. But it's still called the garden. Um, some names. Are, are they flow naturally? The O2 worked out extremely well, and it's still called the O2. So good on them for that. That that has created a great brand and a great experience and a massively intelligent investment. Because I always used to tell Matthew, um, who we made the deal with for the O2 in London, Matthew, if they think you named your company after the arena, that <laughs> is a really good bet, <laughs> and they do. They think they named a telecom company after the arena in London. That's how successful that partnership's been. That's a great partnership that works well for the fans, works well for the city, works well for O2, and worked well for AG. Climate Pledge Arena, got to give Amazon a hell of a lot of credit. It's one of the largest naming rights ever done in the business. 
And you don't hear the Amazon name anywhere. It's their commitment to sustainability and carbon neutral. So they call it Climate Pledge Arena. And by the way, was voted the best facility in the world last year in the entire world. And that's with SoFi and Allegiant Stadium and the others um, that were uh, up for the award at the same time. Huge commitment and statement about not only Jeff Bezos, who drove that decision, but Amazon and Andy Jassy, the CEO, for their commitment towards sustainability. That name works extremely well. UBS Arena works extremely well. It's a good name. It rolls well. They're headquartered in New York. Made all the sense in the world. Moody Center, again, we got lucky. It's a not-for-profit foundation based in Austin that wanted to do something great for the city. Appreciated ourselves in Live Nation spending $350 million privately with Matthew McConaughey. And wanted to do something to do to to be a part of that, and so they wrote a massive check uh, for twenty years. So we it's a twenty year guaranteed deal. They paid up front, and they we never had to change that name for twenty years. And the Moody Center is not only a very well known name because the family's from Austin, and there are other things on the campus and in the city named after Moody. But the Moody Center has a great ring and a roll to it, so it works out well. Sometimes it's it's not a natural kind of fit. Acrisure Arena, Acrisure is based in Michigan, and but the the president owner very smart about trying to create a brand that he wants to get more momentum for uh, as he grows the company and it doubles and triples in size. So we saw a great buy in in Palm Desert. Because it was Irving and OVG and Tim, and he knew we'd do well. We'd we'd go get Harry Styles, and we'd go get the Eagles, and we'd go, we'd we'd get Paramore and sell it out. And so he he made a bet on us at a rate card that is a fraction of what these other people are paying for some of these naming rights, and it turned out to be great for Acrisure and great exposure, and they're they're ecstatic. So you got to be smart, you got to be clever, you got to find good partners, you got to try to make it last. I don't find any joy and changing staples out to crypto or FTX coming and going in a matter of a couple of years. That That's tough for the brand. It's tough for the building. It's tough for the, the city. <clears throat> but they are a necessary evil on, in particular, the privatization of these facilities now. And so Stan Kroenke spent $5.5 billion building SoFi Stadium. He deserves to be able to put a naming rights on there and try to recoup some of his money. And I think the name worked well for Stan and for the Rams and for Los Angeles. It's a great name. And people refer to the stadium as SoFi Stadium. So it's a tricky business. You got to find the right companies. You got to make sure it stands the test of time. We're just now beginning to uh, go out and talk about our new arena we're going to build in Las Vegas and, and the naming rights partner there. And we want to do the right thing. We want to make sure that it's it's the right partner that can last a long period of time and that the name rings well and, and rings long. But <clears throat> it, it that one's tricky because we're not the first arena in the marketplace. And it's tricky because we don't have an anchor tenant. Um, if the NBA wants to expand, we'll go after it, but we'll see what happens. I think it'll be years before they make that decision. So when you price it at, uh, who do you go get that that has longevity? If you get a team after you open, then what do you do with the naming rights and the value? And by the way, will they support the team? And so 
tough business, a complicated business now. And it's not like there's a million companies out there that could afford to buy naming rights. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Did you know that most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate, but not with 80 Acres Farms? Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled, going from farm to store in days, not weeks. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's no need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Okay, let's talk about OVG. Who owns OVG? And all of these are private buildings. Where does the money come from? So OVG is uh, a private company. I'm proud of that. We started it seven years ago. The majority of the company is owned by myself, Irving, and our, our executives, our employees. We have a partner, an investor in Silver Lake. But they're an investor. They they just simply have given us money to go grow this business and in particular to provide the equity we need to invest and to build these arenas. They, they, they don't have a say-so on how we run the company day to day, but we we have an alignment with them. And, and by the way, love them. They're awesome partners. <clears throat> we, we don't go make a big bet without them. So we're aligned. We see everything the same way. And if we don't, we don't do it. That's the deal. They've been, they've never told us no. So they've been phenomenal. They've invested a lot of money in our company. Irving and I have put money into our company. They put more, <laughs> they have more. And so we, we ultimately went for a long period of time with the company where we <clears throat> actually didn't have any debt on the company itself. And just recently put some debt on the company because the company is growing and we're out acquiring things. So we bought Spectra from Comcast uh, a couple of years ago. That got us into the facility management business and the food and beverage business. 
<clears throat> we didn't think the food and beverage brand and the way we did food and beverage within Spectre, our OVG was great. So we kept on buying additional food and beverage companies, including most recently a company called Rhubarb that's the best food and beverage catering company I've ever seen. And so we, we, we are trying to figure out a way to continue to grow, trying to figure out a way to be the best service provider for all of the needs of an arena. So we're in the food and beverage business. We sell naming rights through OVG Global Partnership. We sell our own sponsorships through Global Partnership. We have 150 people that sell in Global Partnership. We have our own parking company. We have our own facility management company. We have a sustainability company. And so unlike the rest of the industry, we actually have a group of people that do nothing but figure out how to have a more sustainable operation for all of our buildings and created a company called Goal with Fenway Sports and our friends at State Farm Arena in Atlanta that are our partners. And we track how you operate a building one quarter to the next and whether or not you're more sustainable the next quarter than the last quarter. And then we grade everybody and we publicize those grades. So everyone knows if you truly have a commitment to sustainability, not on how you design it, that's leads, but that's not what's going to save the earth. It's how you operate it. So we have our own sustainability company. We have our own special event company. We have our own food and beverage um, and catering company. So we have 14 different service companies now that we built. And those service companies, they are, they provide all of the knowledge and all of the outside help that we need when we bring in outside people for the purpose of operating our buildings. That's all under OVG. Pardon me, you can hear I've been traveling too much. That's also part of the core business, which is our own and operated and the equity we put in the seven arenas we built to date and the eight more arenas now we have under development somewhere in the world. And then we have probably 400 accounts where we manage arenas, convention centers, or food and beverage for facilities. And we're committed to growing. And so we'll double in size here in the next couple of years again. Okay, Silver Lake, that's private money putting in. They usually want a relatively short-term return, which would beg the question is the ultimate goal of OVG to go public, and when might that happen? So. I hope we we never go public. I don't want to go public. I my intention is never to sell the company. So I learned after building AG that was Phil's company, and I respect that. That was his checkbook, his money, his risk. He deserves to own that company and run that company the way he sees fit. I, I get it. OVG is our company, and so we have certain guiding principles and core values as a company. One of them is we don't want to be public and don't have any intention of ever being public. It's not a quick spin. Um, my daughter is one of the key executives here. She's hopefully going to inherit this company and run it. She's good at it, and I'm proud of her. She's earned it. My executives are committed long-term. And so when you look at Chris Granger or you look at Dan Griffiths or you look at uh, Christina uh, Song, who's our general counsel, or Steve Collins, who's the president of our development, and you you look at the group we put together, 
this group's going to operate this company for a long period of time. My executive committee, average age is in their 40s. By the way, the majority of my executive committee are females. We're diverse, and I'm proud of that. Our new CFO uh, just came on and is a minority, and he's fantastic. And he's young. He's in his 40s. So we're built to be long-term. We're built to be private. We're built to be generational. And that's what we intend on doing. And we took Spectra when we bought it. We've doubled in size in our first full year. We'll double again in the next two years. And that's what we're going to do. We're entrepreneurial. We see outside the box. We're not afraid to take risk. We're very driven. We love building this company. We love operating this company. We have no intention of selling it. We will always own it, at least as long as myself and Dudley, my dog, are alive. Okay. Now, the big kahuna in this world is ASN, and there's been rumors that it's going to be purchased by uh, Legends. I know that the contracts come up for these buildings. I know the people at ASN. How do you view OVG vis-a-vis ASM? In a perfect world, would you just like to continue to gain market share? So <clears throat> I, I always remind our folks, stay focused, stay focused on us. We're, we're the greatest asset we have, and we're our own worst database. So stay focused on us. <clears throat> we're going to be great, not because ASM is bad. We're going to be great because OVG is going to excel. And so we, we, we bid on 33 accounts here in the last roughly six months, 33. We won 30 of the bids. We don't pay attention to the other guys. We, we stay focused on us. Our success is not because of their failure. We can both succeed and we both will succeed. <clears throat> they, they're, they're owned by a, uh, an investment firm in Toronto. Um, a good investment firm. I knew them when I ran Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. They're very good, and we we very much like Jerry Schwartz and the people that that run that company. But Onyx is they're 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 going to buy it, they're going to build it, and then they're going to sell it. That's what they do. That's the difference between having Silver Lake that invest in my in Irving's company compared to having an investor that owns your company. They're going to spin it at some point or another. So. Does it shock me that they're for sale? No, but that I don't know that for a fact. I don't tell them how to run their company. Um, I used to have that privilege. I don't anymore. I, I kind of focus on our company. So we're, we're going to stay focused on our company. We're going to win 30 of the next 33 bids. We go May. We're going to build eight new arenas. We're going to continue to buy food and beverage companies. We're going to continue to create new genius, I hope, service companies like Goal. And that all is focused on us. What makes us unique and different than everybody else? I own seven arenas. Irving and I own seven arenas. We understand how to run arenas. We understand how to build arenas. We understand how to book arenas. We understand how to sell arenas. I'm not involved in all the other stuff. We stay focused on our core. But when I go out to somebody and say, let me run your building for you, I look them in the eye and say, because I am you. I built the arena. I am in the business. I I have accountability. I have risk. I have money that I put into this. I get the way you think about what you need out of me as a service company. And I will be much more unique at answering your needs because I have been where you have been and I walk in your shoes. That's the difference. And how are responsibilities? 
divided between you and Irving? Well, actually, there is no responsibilities divided by Irving and I and Shelly. And so at the end of the day, <laughs> that is a misnomer. So Ir Irving is uh, one of the founders um, and a great partner. Irving's not involved day to day. He has his own company that he's running. And by the way, he's doing quite well. He is still the largest manager in the business. Uh, I, he, he amazes me on a daily basis based on his age, his passion for the business and the growth he's having in the business is amazing. He happens to be <clears throat> very fortunate to have a partner and uh, a young man named Jeffrey Azoff, who I think is really one of the finest young men in the industry. Uh, one of the best people in the industry. I love Jeffrey Azoff. He's a breath of fresh air. And done an unbelievable job on on full stop. Um, <clears throat> Jeffrey, at some point or another, will probably inherit uh, his portion of this company. And Jeffrey and my daughter Francesca went to school together, get along quite well, see the world the same way. So we are uniquely set up to make sure we pass this on to the next generation, who happens to get along extremely well, and they're both in the business. And Jeffrey's doing a good job with Full Stop, and Francesca is doing a good job of trying to run this company. <clears throat> Irving, when I need him, he's an invaluable resource because no one understands the business more than Irving. And he's smart, and he's good. Do Irving and I, you know, have we had 40 years worth of heavenly bliss? No, but that's what makes us fairly unique. We've had good days and bad days together. But we're both very emotionally committed to this company and doing something spectacular. And we're both passionate about what it is we're doing here. And we're both heavily involved in trying to make this a great company. The difference is I have to get up every day and operate it. That's my job. That's my part of this partnership. But there is no one to have that is a better partner than Irving when it comes to content and understanding pipeline and music and how to book our buildings. And he is a huge resource. He is a he is the Encyclopedia Britannica. Anything I need to know about the business, I pick up the phone and call Irving. And, and he knows that particular issue because he's experienced that particular issue. He knows everybody in the business. And, <clears throat> you know, there aren't many people that are going to book around Irving. Okay. So since you own and are a consultant and operator of other buildings, what are the advantages and what leverage do you gain? Obviously, you can help with routing, but by having, I hate hesitate to use the word control, but I will, control of all these buildings, what advantages do you gain in leverage? Well, for the biggest advantages, I'm stupid and I've made a lot of mistakes and I know it. And so I could go back and tell people, look, I know the right answer to this because I screwed it up. And if you don't believe it, go look at the forum. And if you don't believe it, go look at three levels of suites at the at the crypto. I, I'm really good at acknowledging that to be great in our business, you, you need to do two things very well. Number one, be a good thief and steal other people's ideas and admit it and say, you know, I really like what Jim Dolan did at the forum. It's really clever. He built a an acoustically perfect building. I love the technology Jim Dolan is putting in at the sphere, and it's going to change our industry. I admit it. And I'm, I, I spend a lot of time trying to learn from Jim what he's doing with new technology and new acoustics at the sphere. So one, just, just go learn from other people and steal, take those ideas 
You don't have to recreate everything yourself. And the second thing is acknowledging that with time comes good decisions and bad decisions. And you could put that to work for you. And so I've been doing this a long time now. And I've made a lot of good decisions and I've made a lot of bad decisions. And I remind our young executive team around here, come back to me and at least involve me in the conversation. And chances are pretty good. I've been there already and I've done it. And I either did it well or I probably did it poorly, but I did it. And I can at least make that experience work. That's the advantage we have as a company. I am an arena geek. I've spent my whole life doing this. I built more arenas than anybody in the world. Some good, some bad. But I, I'm getting better at it as time goes on. You know, I'm, I'm getting smart in my old age, finally, Bob. And so the advantage we have with our clients and our partners and our arena alliance, we have 29 of the top 33 arenas in the business that are part of our alliance. And we learned, we, we, we are saying as we book together, we buy together. We think together and we try to act together. We're, we're, we learn from each other and we communicate once a month. We get on a phone and talk. Irving and I are still actively involved. We got another call next week and we, we try to learn with them about think, how do we operate buildings better? How do we become more profitable? What, what else can we do to be a better business? But we have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge. We do a lot of communicating with, with our 29 partners in the alliance. I got seven arenas that I operate, so I'm, I can tell them what I'm doing well and what I'm not doing so well. Of the seven, most of them are really good. A couple of them, we're, we're trying to get it to where we want them to be, and they're not there yet, but they'll get there. Most of them are doing much better than we thought. We're Seattle's one of the highest grossing arenas in the world. It's top 10 arena in the world. We're really proud of that fact that we built an arena privately and it's one of the top arenas in the world now. The Moody Center is one of the top arenas in the world. We're really proud of that building. Very creative what we did there to build an arena on a campus at the University of Texas that the state owns. And we figured out a way to make it work. And so that's unique to have that kind of experience when you're talking to people about managing their building or we have 29 partners in the alliance. They respect us because we have put up four and a half billion dollars to build arenas. And I'm about to spend another four and a half billion on eight more. And by the way, I'm going to put eight more in the pipeline as soon as those eight are under construction. So we're, we want to have 25 to 30 arenas that are the best arenas in the world that we own and operate. And that's, we we're allowed to do that, right? That's not, there's no competitive issues there. That's what I love about our industry is I can have 25 of the best arenas in the world I could sell them together. I could, I could integrate naming rights. So I could sell somebody a naming rights in one city, but then take that brand and make them sponsors in 10 other cities and give them a worldwide reach. They're not going to get any other place. It's impossible to do what we do because we have arenas and some of the biggest, best markets in the world. Now I can learn from premium. I could go to companies and sell them premium in multiple arenas in multiple cities. I can go to artists and ultimately say, come play all my buildings and all of my different markets. And by the way, I'll give you an economic advantage for giving me bulk mass. That is unique on what we're building. And we're the only ones that could do it now. We, there is no one that will hit our critical mass. If you think about it, 25 of the top 50 arenas in this world in the next five or seven years will be ours. 
No one else could claim that and no one else could replicate that. That's the goal. That's the ambition. That's the job at hand. We got a lot of work to do to get there, but that's what we're trying to do that makes us unique. Doesn't make us smarter. Doesn't make us better. Just makes us unique. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Let's just talk ticketing for a minute. All these buildings were not operated by someone with as much experience uh, or smarts as you. And they all had exclusive deals, frequently with Ticketmaster and sports, not necessarily. And if you talk to those like Fred Rosen in the business, the deals would end up being in perpetuity because it'd be like a five-year deal. You would give an advance to the building and the building would come back for more money. And then ultimately the ticketing enterprise would get more years. So what is your belief and feeling about exclusives and how much should the building get in fees? This is dark arts that the average person doesn't understand, but you know, like the back of your head. So all good questions, all important questions right now and timely. So we look, we're, we sell as a company. We're, we're selling tens of millions of tickets in all of our buildings now. And we probably are, you know, with seven open and eight more coming. If you look at those 15 buildings and then you look at the, the buildings we manage, we're, we got a hundred million tickets. We probably sell as a company here once we get everything up we could probably be our own ticketing company but the decision we make on ticketing has a little bit less to do with money 
and more to do with having a system and and having a technology that actually works without having to go spend the time and the money to go create it. So at AEG, I, I started with Brian Perez on building access ticketing, and they're still going strong. And to Brian's credit, he's done a good job of building that company from the ground floor up. Hard to do, really hard to do. It's like a black hole. I mean, it is the amount of money you got to spend on technology in order to make a ticketing system efficient is just astronomical. What people don't get about Ticketmaster, and the reason we're with Ticketmaster is a couple of things, and it's really simple. They are the best ticketing company in the world. I Everyone could sit here and argue, but look, I sell more tickets, I think, than just about anybody else in the world. Ticketmaster is the best ticketing system in the business, bar none. No disrespect to anybody else. No one sells as many tickets as Ticketmaster. No one does it as well as they do it. And yes, they, they have their days. But guess what? This whole thing with Taylor, it, that's Taylor. She's amazing. I mean, <laughs> I don't care what system you use. She'd break it. She's that big. We've never had an artist like this before, ever. There has never been someone. This young lady is a force of nature that we've never seen in our industry. And again, people will say, well, what about Elton John? What about this? And We've never had a Taylor Swift. She's incredible. She'll break any system out there, guarantee you, because she's that good with that much demand. Day to day, every show we put on sale, and we put on, you know, we've had hundreds and hundreds of shows in our buildings. Ticketmaster's system is highly reliable, and they do a good job. So one, I don't want to have to go spend the time and the money to go create my own system. I, it's you don't fight a war on two fronts. That's stupid. So if we find a good partner that is best in class that could do that for me while I spend my time trying to figure out a way to build a great arena, then why wouldn't I do that so I could stay focused on my core business? That's one. Number two is they've been great partners. Honestly, they're fantastic. When I got a problem, I pick up the phone and Marla and and the team there, they, they are unbelievably responsive back to me. They help me. They they help us think. They know how driven we are on technology and the customer experience. And they're they're very good at trying to make that experience better. When we had COVID issues and we had four checkpoints, four checkpoints people had to go through to get into our buildings, they came along and they were unbelievably good at trying to help me eliminate wait times. Because we had people waiting for 20 or 30 minutes in cold weather in some of our buildings because they had to do the COVID test and they had to do security checking and they had to do ticket swipe. And it, it, it was a problem. And so I love the fact that the smartest, most experienced, most knowledgeable people in the world happen to also be my best partners. And they're unbelievably good at helping me think through problems. And then finally, I, my relationship with Live Nation is one that started out of necessity. At first, AG didn't want to work with us, and I get it. They, I, I guess I'm a, I don't know what I am to them, but it, they, they didn't go to Polestar. They, they didn't participate in Polestar. I begged them to ultimately participate, speak, be on a panel, do their own panel, do a keynote, anything. They prohibited their people from going to Polestar. So what was I supposed to do? Irving and I went with Live Nation because I didn't have an alternative. And they accepted us and put their arms around us and made a huge bet on us. Now they look pretty good. 
So Ticketmaster looks pretty good and Live Nation looks pretty good because we exploded. I'm never going to forget who helped me start this company. I'm never going to forget the fact they made a bet on us and believed in us to begin with. And now they're my partner on a bunch of buildings. So now they're writing checks with me. So I'll work with any promoter in the business because I'll work with any artist. This is about the artist, period. Every artist should play our building because I'm trying to build the best buildings. Irving and I are committed to building the best arenas ever built. We want every artist to come experience that. We're dedicated to that. That's why I think we'll win is because we have a unique thought process of what does the artist and their fans want out of this experience. But I'm not going to forget Ticketmaster because they gave me the best system and adopted me from day one. And I'm not going to forget Live Nation because at the end of the day, they were there when I started the company and they've been unbelievable ever since. And they put their money where their mouth is. I have a great relationship with Jay Marciano. They book our buildings. They've had a pretty good run with us in Austin and Seattle in particular. I wish they booked the building more, but in time that'll come. Um, and so we we get on with it. But I love Ticketmaster because it's a good system and they're loyal people and they've been great friends and it's the best system in the business. And I absolutely adore Live Nation. Doesn't mean we don't fight every day. We do. But when, when I have a problem, I pick up the phone and call Michael or Omar or Bob or the team over there and they call me right back. And that we are unbelievably good at solving problems and creating opportunities. They think outside the box like we do. So, look, I'm blessed. Honestly, I am so damn lucky to have partners like Ticketmaster and Live Nation, which made our decision much easier. Now, it doesn't mean, Bob, we don't go press. So, I've had huge battles with the leagues about our security system. We happen to own a security company called Prevent Advisors. It's the best security company and the facility business. We do the Homeland Certification Checks for Homeland Certification on all the facilities. We're the only one that is certified by Homeland Security. So we're certified. We have a system on security that we think is the best system in the industry, and we couldn't get the leagues to allow us to use it in our buildings because that system wasn't certified. But it takes three to five years to get certification from the U.S. government. It's a bureaucracy. And so we're always pressing for new systems, new technology, new ways to make the experiences better. We'll always look outside the box. We're not wedded to somebody because of an old boys network. We will go explore new ticketing. We will go find new ways to do ticketing. But right now, there is no one better than Ticketmaster, and they're doing an extraordinary job for us. Last thing, I don't believe in the secondary tickets companies. I don't. I, I don't think they have skin in the game. I've I've spent Irving and I have spent four and a half billion dollars trying to build these arenas. I've had the demons come visit me often at night in the middle of COVID, in the middle of economic stress and inflation and interest rates going up. There's a lot we have to fight through to be successful as an entrepreneur and as somebody who is privately financing these arenas. What right do they have to come in? No skin in the game. They don't give us a penny. They don't make the arena better for the fan or the artist. They don't give the artist any money. So they, they're not sharing anything with Bruce or Don or Taylor. So they're, they're, they just simply come in and exploit as a middleman, right? They're, they're just a, a, a middleman buying tickets and then reselling them for a lot more money. And in particular, they're disrupting the system. So the bots that they unleash on early on sale are 
that's part of why we see some of the technical issues we see on giant onsets is because the bots and the technology they deploy absolutely cause havoc. And they're middlemen. They don't share the money with the artist and they're not sharing the money with the building. Now, that's my own opinion. I'm, you know, I check my car every day because I know I'm not their favorite person, but we, we don't believe that scalpers and the secondary ticket companies have the right to exploit the fans and the artists the way they do without sharing in the risk, sharing in the entrepreneurial spirit and sharing where the money should go, which is we come to go see Don Henley and the Eagles. That's what I pay money to go see. Why is Don Henley and the Eagles not making a portion of that money like they should? Okay, that's a much longer conversation we have to take, but this does beg the question. Before Irving got involved with Oakview, one of his main complaints was all the tickets that are not on the manifest. Now that you're a building owner, which, how do you address that? Well, we, we, we actually, I believe in the artists. Look, I, I'm very fortunate that I've had 40 years in the business and I see it the way they see it. Because, again, we're buying tickets to go see Bruce Springsteen. <clears throat> By the way, he's spectacular. I just saw him in Hyde Park. My God, how blessed are we to have this guy still spending three hours, three and a half hours every night entertaining us? What, what a great industry and what a great world to be able to participate. And as a fan, I went to Hyde Park. Um, as, by the way, guests of AG thanked them. And it, what a great experience. They've done a phenomenal job with that concert experience there. And it just, it made me understand how much I love this industry is just someone that went that night to go experience Bruce Springsteen after I've seen him, I don't know, eight times this year already. And I walked away, my daughter went with me and I said, how, how great was that? Bruce Springsteen should get the money. <laughs> he just should. So I see it the way they see it, which means on the manifest, when we build a new arena, we have to find an economic balance. Now, I got to go pay for the arena. <clears throat> my, I've created a better experience for them. And by the way, they're making a hell of a lot more money in my arena than they used to make in the old arenas. So I'm giving them more seats. They could charge more for the seats because the experience is better for the seats. And I cut, I, I do bonuses, if you will, back to promoters and artists to, to reward them for the number of dates they'll do in my buildings. So what we do is actually very simple. I On my premium seats, I will buy the ticket from the artist. And then the upside for the premium services, for the special food, the special club, the special parking, the special experiences, the right to buy the tickets before the rest of the people get a chance to buy them. So they got predictability. I'm going to keep the upside. I'll give them a little bit of the upside. That's that bonus. But I'm going to buy the ticket from them because they deserve to be paid for the ticket. I, I, we're going to do that. Now, we have to go deal occasionally with an artist that comes on and says, well, I don't want anybody getting a first right to the tickets. I want the fans, everybody to have the first right to the ticket. So we, we work through that. We, there are a lot of bands out there that are passionate about that. Girl Jam, for example, we, we figure it out. We take our premium seat holders and say, hey, occasionally we're, we're going to do the best we can, but not every night we're, are we going to be able to guarantee you the first right to buy that seat. And so, you got to be flexible. You got to understand the needs of the artist. You got to be fair. You, you should buy the ticket from the artist. 
Uh, we don't buy the suite tickets because we sell them annually. That's the one place where it goes to help pay for the building. Every promoter we deal with and every manager we deal with and every agent we deal with, they understand that. They get that I, I'm spending $500 million on average to build an arena, and the arena is making them a lot more money than they used to make, and it's a much better experience, and the back house is better, the load-in is better, the rigging is better, they spend less money coming and going, they make more money at the end of the night because they could charge more for my arenas because the seats are fantastic. We share. We figure out a way to be partners. We're aligned. We make sure we take care of them and respect them. That's what does get me wound up about, you know, those that are making money that don't participate in that alignment, don't take risks, don't make the experience better, and don't reward the artist. That's a problem. But I'm I'm not the problem. I figure out a way to see it in their eyes. I try to treat them fairly. And I also ask them to remember I'm I'm spending $500 million to build this arena. I got to make my money back. Help me do that, and I'll help you, and I'll pay you for the tickets. Okay. Where are you from originally, and what were your circumstances growing up? So um, I, I grew up in St. Louis, uh, six brothers and sisters. Six? Wow. Yeah. My, my brother, Todd, is, I think, the most accomplished person I've met in the industry. He, he's much better and smarter than I am. So I'm not sure what, I think they dropped me on my head a couple of times and thoroughly enjoy working with him, which we do every day. He He's running the Kraken and Climate Pledge for us up in Seattle. We're partners. And by the way, he's a shareholder in this company uh, for, for being a part of of what our, our partnership up there. Um, so both of us have enjoyed growing our careers together. We enjoy spending time with each other. We just jointly bid on Memorial Stadium in Seattle won that bid. So we we owe a huge debt of gratitude to both my mom and dad who have passed. Um, one of our brothers just died, uh, and it was sad because he died quickly, and it was an experience that shook both of us because we were with him. He's the healthiest of everybody in the family, so it was quite shocking. But it it shows you um, how devastating cancer could be because he literally – he disappeared in front of us in three weeks. So it was the, just one of the worst things I've ever seen. And so we we appreciate every day the five that remain. We we were installed great work ethic. I didn't go to college because I couldn't go to college. We were doing the dog paddle. My brother didn't go to college. Todd and I are very unusual to be in the positions and to have the fortunate uh, opportunities that we have both had. And neither of us have a college education. But we were very fortunate that um, our mother and our father, uh, and we lost our mother. I was, I think, seven or eight years old when she died. But they they taught us work ethic, and they taught us how to get up every day and and earn your keep. And so both of us are relentless at living our lives every day hard. Um, we are relentless at trying to be successful. We're relentless on pushing ourselves and our, and our people. But he, in particular, <clears throat> builds some of the greatest cultures I've ever seen for employees. He does a phenomenal job up there for not just the people that work for the Kraken and for Climate Pledge, but for the fans of the Kraken and the people that come to that building every day. And I think that's kind of, yes, we, we kind of had to fight when we were young and went through some really tough times. But I think that installed within us a character and a work ethic that hopefully still are uh, our core value today. So what did your father do for a living? 
And what kind of kid were you growing up? Were you the straw that stirs the drink? Were you a loner or what? Um, so my dad was, he did what he had to do to survive because, you know, suddenly he was trying to raise six kids because we were all pretty young still. Uh, my two older brothers were in college already, but still pretty shocking to lose your wife at that age because he was, they were in their forties. And then having six kids, you got to raise and then still go have a career. So he, he sold his whole life. So that's probably where Todd and I learned how to sell. But he bounced a lot and and you saw him deteriorate as a, you know, you that takes a huge toll. And then his, the next wife died of cancer. So he went back to back and we lost our mom and our stepmom to cancer. And so that that changed him and he was never the same. And thank God he didn't, you know, quite frankly, that would have driven most people to um, abuse their life. And he didn't. He He got up every day and worked hard. But it it he lost confidence and he lost hope and he lost ambition because you can't go through life and take two gut punches like that and not have it affect who you are as a human being. But he he didn't let the demons get him. And I have a deep appreciation for the fact he lived till his 90s and he never let the demons get him. Meant the rest of us, again, the dog paddles in the middle of the lake. I was very committed and attached to my mother. And then um, I'd say I was a disciplined young man and I worked two or three jobs at all times in my life when I was growing up. I'd get up early in the morning and work at a bakery and then I'd go from the bakery to a deli. And so I, I always worked hard and I didn't cause a lot of havoc and a lot of trouble. And I saved that for my later years. And now I'm making up for being a good kid, I guess. So it all averages out. But <clears throat> lucky that those values also give me a um, a wife of 30 plus years and a daughter I'm really proud of who has chosen to go into business and two grandsons and the oldest grandson who's eight wants to go build arenas for a living. <laughs> and so it's, um, it's a full circle and I've been blessed and I'm very fortunate that I learned a lot of tough lessons early on that have come in and I hope given me other opportunities later in my life that have overcompensated me, quite frankly, for some of the early challenges. Okay. But growing up, were you good in school, bad in school? Were you popular? And ultimately, how did you decide not to go to college? So I'd say I was good at the things I was interested in. I was really good. So I excelled in things like um, uh, debate, history, um, fascinated by history, politics, math. Um, everyone that's ever worked around me knows I sit there and add stuff up in my head as we're talking, and they're all fearful of, <laughs> of, of my ability to make decisions quickly on stuff like that. But there was other stuff I just wasn't interested in. And so... But I, I I graduated a year early in high school and got on with it. I I could have gone to college, but I was working and I had to work. I wasn't living at home. I was living on my own and I had to go work. And I was working two jobs. And then I started um, with, with a company called New England Life, which is a very old, uh, conservative, established um, life insurance pension investment firm out of Boston. And you, you had to be 21 years old. Somebody had to recommend you into the company. You had to have a college education. I didn't have two of the three, but I had somebody that really believed in me. 
called Bill Whitney, and he he spoke up and said, we got to bring this kid in and let him do the internship program. I understand he's only 20 years old, but there's something about the kid. They did. And then I was the rookie of the year. And my third year of doing that and beginning to have success, I went to work for an indoor soccer team. I was the number two employee. Uh, the number one employee got caught doing something he shouldn't have done. And I became the number one employee and became the president at like 21 or 22 years old. Wait, wait, you were selling, you were selling insurance. What motivated you to jump to indoor soccer, which was not lighting up the world at the time to boot? Uh, so my brother, ironically, so I, I, I think I was 23 or 24 actually at the time. And my brother was the announcer for the Houston Arrows, which was a world hockey league team with the uh, Gordy Howe and his sons. And the owner of the Houston team bought the expansion rights to St. Louis. And I was in St. Louis and my brother said, you should go talk to him. I talked to him. I'm like, God, this is really interesting. And I grew up in a family that liked sports and enjoyed sports. <clears throat> and they offered me a job and I decided to take it. And so ironically, the St. Louis steamers averaged about 18,000, 17,000 people a night our first year. Shocking. So we sold out the check for dome. The blues were there and the guys that ran the blues thought we were a circus. And I said, I know. And everybody loves the circus. You don't get <laughs> it, do you? <laughs> we, we were unbelievably successful. And then I got hired at the age of 25 to be the president of the Baltimore Blast, which is my passion for Baltimore. We sold out pretty much every game there and, and did well, and then went to Kansas City and we created the Comets and did extremely well there. Okay, okay a little bit slower. These seats don't sell themselves. What was the special sauce you were employing to make these teams so successful? We worked hard, uh, honestly. So for example, in Baltimore, you know, I was a 26, 27 year old kid and I was the president of the whole organization. So everything reported into me. Um, and so in the summer when we had our, we hadn't started playing yet. So we were in breaking in the community. We created a concept called beat the goalie. So we brought our players in early, paid them nothing. I was, I think we paid a thousand dollars a month. It was kind of ridiculous at the time. <clears throat> Seth Gettenheimer was our keeper. I remember him quite well. And then we had a, another kid named Alan Mayer, um, and we brought him in during the summer and said, "Look, we're gonna we're gonna work. You're gonna help me go out and meet everybody in this community. And every weekend, we'd go to every festival and every fair everywhere in Baltimore and Maryland, and we do beat the goalie. And uh, by the way, I was the third goalie, so we'd rotate. So I'd give them a break, and I wouldn't let the kids score on me. That was the difference. I'm like, no one's scoring on me today." <laughs> We met thousands, tens of thousands of people and turned them into blast fans because we got to know them and we got to build a relationship. And then we we did a thing in St. Louis, <clears throat> in Kansas City and in Baltimore called introductions, which no one had ever tried before. So I was working with my brothers in, in Kansas City, but in St. Louis and Baltimore, I I did introductions. So in St. Louis, we created a song. We stole a song called Ain't No Stopping Us Now. And I created a light show with mirror balls. And I turn out the lights and I'd use smoke because we were the steamers. So we came out of steam and I made it a show. And then in Baltimore, we did Diana Ross, I'm Coming Out. I made it a bigger show. 
And by the time we got to Kansas City, we were absolute, like, perfect at producing the circus. And we were the circus. And we created a 10-minute show in an introduction where every night we do a different piece of music and I'd orchestrate a different special effect from fireworks to mirror balls to smoke to lasers. And one day, true story, we're sitting at lunch in Kansas City, my brother and I, and the bus boy comes up and I'm looking at this kid and he says a few words and I'm like, has anyone told you, you look exactly like Michael Jackson? And he says, oh yeah, I'm, I do a Michael Jackson like imitation. I said, well, can you show me? So right there in the middle of the Hyatt, where we're having lunch, he does the moonwalk. <laughs> and I'm like, I want you to come see me after your shift today. He came down to the Kemper Arena, and I said, do, do you sing? And he sings a few songs. He is Michael Jackson. I'm like, my God, I've never seen anything like it. We put him in the pregame show. So we do some Michael Jackson music, introduce this young man. He's out there in the middle of it, and he's so good. That everyone thinks it's Michael Jackson. I'm like, yeah, Michael Jackson is doing the opening of a Kansas City Comets. Believe what you will. He became a sensation. We actually had pe everyone would show up 10 minutes ahead of tip off to see the pregame show. 16,000 people every night and we became a sensation. That was really the first time you saw introductions in sports. And it was the beginning. And then I think the Bulls and Steve Shamwald came in and did an even better job, God bless him, with with uh, Manford Man in the Earth Band, if I'm not mistaken. And so we 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 were perfectionists though, and I'd literally go create a new 10-minute pregame show every night. And I'd hire people. I brought in a kids' choir one night to do the chorus for Kenny Loggins, I'm free. And we'd choreograph it and rehearse it. And I had these special effect guys that were stagehand guys for rock and roll. And I said, I want to create a rock and roll show every night for 10 minutes before we introduce the players. It was going along swimmingly until one night the mirror ball, he forgot to turn the crane off and it hit the top of the ceiling, busted and came down on the floor and almost took out my entire team. But we, we had a good time. It was a life lesson. I learned how important it was to, to put on a show. Uh, and also we kind of ran Kemper Arena, so we got to get into the rock and roll business and we were promoters. And so it, it, that's what got me into arenas and that's what got me into music and that's what got me into eventually promotion. So where'd you go from Kansas City? I was hired as the youngest uh, uh, person ever for the Minnesota Timberwolves. I was their first employee and I was in charge of all the business. And we broke attendance records our first year at the Metrodome. So to this day, I think they still stand. We sold over a million tickets our first year for, for the Timberwolves. So we averaged something like 27,000 people a night. But we were terrible, terrible. We were the worst form of basketball mankind had ever invented. Bill Musselman b believed in running out the shot clock every possession. And if a player tried to score too quickly, he'd bench him. It was like, oh, this is god awful. But we sold 27,000 tickets a night. And then we moved into the new Target Center and uh, helped build that, although that was not my favorite building. It's amazing. It's still there today. They need a new arena in Minnesota. The, the timber will snow it. Um, and then spent four years there and then hired as the youngest president in the NBA uh, for the Denver Nuggets and came in and resurrected that franchise from near bankruptcy. 
And and then we had great success on the court. Bernie Bickerstaff was the general manager. Uh, and Dan Issa was the head coach. And we had uh, Dikembe Mutombo and Lafonso Ellis and, and um, a group of kids that were fantastic. And we made it all the way to the Western Conference Finals, I think, in our third year. And that's where we created the Pepsi Center at the time. So I negotiated the deal to build a new arena. And we decided to do it privately. And it became the Pepsi Center. And then I went from there to uh, a thing called the LA Kings, and it became um, AEG. Okay, now that's a megalopolis in downtown Los Angeles. Tell me how you ran the Kings and how you ultimately came up with the idea for LA Live, et cetera. So the Kings, Phil, Phil was smart. Phil is smart. Um, he bought him out of bankruptcy. Uh, paid everybody off. God bless him. Uh, convinced me to leave what I was doing and move to LA, which um, that was tough uh, and a transition, quite frankly. And my family stayed back in Denver for a while while I was out in LA. And so um, we were a terrible team that didn't have a philosophy. We had just traded away the greatest player in the history of the game, Wayne Gretzky, which was stupid. And we had to build it from there. And I ended up having to fire everybody and bring on a whole new staff. And I didn't know anything about hockey. So I had to teach myself the game. And I wasn't very good at it. By the way, at first, we made a lot of mistakes. <clears throat> but then we, we Phil partnered with a guy named Ed Roski. And I got to know Ed Roski. And Ed Roski is the guy that created the genius behind LA Live. That was Ed's vision. Um, not mine, not Phil's. That was Ed's. But we took it and ran with it. As I said, we took a good idea and said, okay, I get it. Let me go try to make this happen. Forged an unbelievable partnership with Dr. Buss. Uh, he put me under his wing and I learned about naming rights and premium seats and showtime. I was the only non-Buss member on the board there for a very long time and got to watch Genius at work. Um, we won, I still have, I think, five or six championships and rings from my time with the Lakers. Love Jeannie Bus, love the Bus family, love Dr. Bus. He taught me more than anybody I've ever been around in my life and was an unbelievably good partner. We were highly lucky with Staples Center that we had two kids named Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant, and we won championships. And then when they slowed down, the Kings started winning championships in 2012 and 2014 and won the Stanley Cups. So we were blessed by the Lakers and the run they had and Jerry West and uh, Phil Jackson. Um, amazing to be around those gentlemen and learn that literally from Doc Buss to Jerry West to Phil Jackson and just watch them. They taught me a lot about how to win. And I use that in order to help the Kings win and help the Galaxy win. And we grew as a company. We we bought the LA Galaxy. We built the Home Depot Center. And then we went out and I got a little English lad named David Beckham to come to the league and help us change the league forever. And then we got into the promotion business and decided to do concerts and became the second largest promotion company in the world. Um, and bought, we were lucky. We found a partner and a young man named Paul Tillett and became partners in Coachella and then created a festival called Stagecoach. The Eagles were our partners on Stagecoach originally. Um, and we grew from there. And we jumped into Randy Phillips and Jay Marciano, got us into things like Hyde Park. Uh, we built new arenas in London and built a new arena in Berlin at the wall, literally staring at the wall. 
our first night. Um, we had Metallica open the building for us and 5,000 people protested and I couldn't understand it. And it's like, wait a minute, we privatized the building. We built it for free. We hired all these people. We brought in Metallica to open the building. What are they protesting? And they said, they're just protesting. They don't care. They just wanted to come together and protest you because they can. <laughs> so we built arenas in Shanghai and, and, um, other places around the world. It was an unbelievable experience. Phil Anschutz is to this day uh, someone I highly respect for the risk and the money he gave us to go build that company and get into all things that he probably would look at me and go, what the hell are you doing here? But it was an amazing experience and an amazing 20 years. And we enjoyed every moment of it, including building what became the most important entertainment district in the industry, LA Live, and showing what you could do. I remember when we were debating building Staples Center and getting approval. And remember, we privatized it. So we built the arena ourselves privately. Mr. Anschutz and Ed Roski paid for that out of their own pockets. And in the debate to get entitlement, there was a councilman named Joel Wax. And Joel was opposing us because he could. He was pissing on the parade. And Joel would hold these public meetings and, you know, be showcases. And, and as I learned at the time, and now it's my other favorite saying, Every city has cave people, which is citizens against virtually everything. And so <laughs> they all came out and Joel brought in this professor from the University of Chicago. And he said, sports facilities do not make an economic difference. Sports facilities don't create jobs. Sports facilities will have zero impact on the future of urban growth in a community. And there's no reason to give these guys the entitlement they want because they won't help the city. They'll hurt the city. And I remember getting up after the guy spoke and said, I cannot believe this man is teaching our kids. We have a serious problem. Turns out, I think Staples Center saved downtown Los Angeles. And when you look at downtown Los Angeles, to the credit of Ed Roski and the vision he had, it dynamically changed a, a city that no one wanted to live in, no one wanted to work in, and no one wanted to come down and play in. And LA Live and the investment that happened, the JW Marriott and the Ritz, uh, the convention center and and turning that back into something that was an important dominant convention center in the industry. Um, pretty amazing. And then my favorite part of my favorite thing is the Grammy Museum that we built there. And a wonderful uh, gentleman that also adopted me, Jerry Parencio, giving us the grant to help build that thing and um, moving the Grammys downtown and being a part of uh, the the lure of Staples Center and um, changing lives, hopefully, of thousands and thousands of kids because we put music back into schools at a time when they were the first damn program. Everybody was yanking out of the curriculum. And so really enjoyed LA Live and enjoyed AEG, enjoyed AEG Presents. And it was a fascinating time. But eventually, when you have two people that are a bit polar opposite, which Phil and I were, politically and, and in a lot of other ways. And by the way, it was his company. And he felt like I didn't respect that. He was probably right. And I, after 20 years, I forgot that, it, that he wrote the checks and he owned it. And so I respect that now as somebody that owns a company and has taken the financial risk that we've taken here. I, I get that. And so um fortunate that I get a chance to go build my own company with Irving and our executives here and my daughter and Silver Lake. Okay, it ends with AEG. Very quickly, you take a job in Toronto. 
my personal belief is when they have a job that good, you know, you want to sit back and assess the landscape. Although you were successful in Toronto, was that a rash decision? And ultimately, why did you decide to leave Toronto? So I, I went to Toronto just because I didn't want to pick a fight with Phil. And I, I had to respect his decision that we needed to part and go our different ways. And I didn't want to stay in LA because, um, one, it hurt, right? We were winning championships and, and it just, I, I didn't want to have to sit here and, and go every day and have the Kings, Lakers, Galaxy results on TV that night, me going, you know, what the hell? And so it was a good decision to, to move and get out and not pick a fight and not have a conflict. If I would have started, OVG that first year, my guess is it would have been a bigger fight between the two companies because that that was really rubbing. And I out of respect to Phil, he he treated me well at, at AG for most of the years and he gave me a great opportunity. And so I wasn't gonna go pick that fight. And I had to get out of LA and let him go do his thing. And by the way, they have a hell of a company today. So I went to Toronto. Larry Tannenbaum was kind enough to convince me to come up there. And I quickly realized they were deathly afraid of winning. Crazy, right? We're in the sports business. We should get paid to win. And that's all we should think about. They were afraid to win, didn't know how to win, and had too much pressure on them. I remember going to one of my first soccer games for the Toronto FC. And we're in this it was a sweep and I called a neutral sweep. It was a sweet substitute. And I said, I'm going to go outside and sit outside. And they said, don't do that. I'm like, well, why not? And I said, well, the fans are going to yell at you and throw things at you. And I said, well, first of all, we deserve it. And if I was a fan, I'd throw rocks at me based on the way you guys have run this franchise. We suck. So let them have that me and it'll make them feel better. And sure enough, they did. They hurled stuff at me and insults at me. And I'm like, you're right. I get it. We're going to switch it. But it it taught me about kind of how they disrespect. They forgot about the fans. So we came in and we rebuilt the organizations. I was, I was there uh, roughly four years. So two years full-time and two years where I was allowed to do both jobs. So it was, it was actually a lot of fun. Met great people, had a great staff, great organization. Stole Masai Ujiri from Denver. And he came and was the president uh, stole a kid, a kid named Tim Bezbachenko from MLS, and he became my president. We won championships with TFC. We went and got Giovinco, uh, and he came in and toured the league up, Michael Bradley. So we had a lot of fun with the team, and that team changed the league in a dynamic way, and we were winning championships and having fun there. And then Masai won a championship with the Raptors that that I was fortunate enough to, to be a part of at the end there. And the, you know, we, I still think they're going to win a Stanley Cup. I hired uh, Brendan Shanahan to be the president there. And I think they're on the right track and will win a Stanley Cup here. So I enjoyed winning. Uh, that was fun. Uh, championships are fun. Uh, that culture was fun. We, we became much more aggressive at music, had a good joint venture with Live Nation, made music a much higher priority in the building. Uh, built a new training center for the Raptors, built essentially a new stadium for Toronto FC and great owners with Rogers, Bell and Larry. 
and enjoyed it. But I told him day one, hey, I'm going to do this, but understand there's going to be a day in time sometime in the five years here where I'm going to go build my own company. And I just want you to know that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be here forever. And they knew it. But, you know, when I walked in the door one day and said, I, I think I want to go do that. It was hard because we were just starting to win. So we figured out a way to share. And I bounced between OVG and Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. And they were kind enough and good enough to allow me to do that for some period of time before we found a successor. Do you have any free time or do you just consider work to be play? Or is there some, you have downtime where you either do something else, maybe don't want to travel or watch streaming television, read, whatever. So it's definitely work is not play. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> I, I do like working. I do work hard and I do really enjoy what I do, but it's hard. It's very hard. We started with four of us at OVG. We now have 40,000 employees. And so it's hard. And it, we've grown quicker than even I thought we would. Um, it, you go from COVID to inflation to interest rates to, you know, and, and Manchester Brexit still can't figure out why the hell they did that one. It is just, you just, it, you, it's not easy to be an entrepreneur anymore. I don't get the politics in most of the places we're at, including here. I scratched my head saying, uh, what the hell happened here? And we got to deal with a lot of politicians, some phenomenal, like in Baltimore, unbelievably blessed. Mayor Scott is fantastic, young, dynamic, great for the city, believes in the city. Governor Moore, he's going to be president one day. This guy is fantastic, just fantastic. It gives me new hope for our country. There, there are still great leaders out there that are willing to sacrifice their lives uh, and their time and their families to to go make a difference. And he's going to make a difference. So we, we're lucky that we get to deal with a lot of good politicians. We, you know, in Texas, I, I wanted to make it a carbon neutral building and they're looking at me going, what's carbon neutral? And so, you know, to each his own and you got to adopt and live. You got to make sure you're a mirror image of the community you're supposed to represent. We're trying to do that. That's hard work. Traveling's hard work. Um, I just spent three weeks traveling uh, internationally, hard work. But I look, I get to go to places now. I, I just came back from Riyadh. Um, we don't understand Saudi Arabia. We're making a mistake with Saudi Arabia. And the crown prince is going to change that country. And we, we have, you could have your opinions on the politics there, but he's opening the country up. You, you can't wave a switch and do it overnight. And I understand a lot of people on on what happened with with the journalists and it's unfortunate but but as, as some of the people in saudi arabia said to me just people on the street when we would talk and i said tell me they said first our lives are better he's opening up society the quality of life is 10 times better they're reinvesting there's less graft less corruption they're putting money back into the system and by the way Look, you, you guys didn't exactly do a great job with the Indians. And so you got to understand there, there, there are moral standards and values each society needs to put upon themselves and then figure that out from within that society. Not sure you have the right to go tell us how we're supposed to run this country. And I'm like, I get it. I understand. I am shocked 
at the trillions and trillions of dollars they are putting into that country and rebuilding that country as quick as they are. And by 2030, Riyadh's going to be the center of the universe, the airport, the development, the the arenas. Wait till you see the arenas they're building there. They're off the charts. I've never seen anything like it. Abu Dhabi, Yas Island, Dubai, that whole world there is just amazing. And it's the center of the universe. And let's not forget, they are right next to India, which is one of the fastest growing, most important countries in the world. They're right near Africa. And Africa is going to be a really critical part of the world and a part of our society that we need to pay attention to. Think of what, what Nigeria is doing to music today and the artists that are emerging and dominating our music from places like Lagos. So we're going to build an arena in Lagos because that's the future. And by the way, that's all centered around places like Riyadh. And so earth shattering to, to go learn about the rest of the world. Uh, we spend a lot of time in, in the UK. We, we hopefully are going to get a, a, an arena on the west side of London one day. Uh, we're working on another project in Bristol. So we're excited about that. We just won the, the bid in Vienna fascinating part of the world in central europe because vienna has about 30 million people that live in and around that region that go to vienna for their culture their activity their sports their music it is the birthplace of music in many ways um with great composers that came from that part of the world like mozart so highly excited about that project we're excited about sao paulo 30 million people in brazil south america you cannot ignore brazil and the growth of that country and Sao Paulo, 30 million people uh, trying to bid in Singapore because we we understand that part of the world is growing as well. So the majority of our growth is internationally, and that means I have to spend a lot of time working internationally. That's good news, but it's hard. It's not easy. It's not easy to have 40,000 employees. And we got 5,000 permanent employees. We have six headquarters, I think six, and London and New York and Los Angeles and Austin. Um, we we it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy to try to do this right. We're not always right. We have a lot to learn. We could do better. We will do better. But it, it you you gotta be committed and you gotta be passionate. And it doesn't leave a lot of time for everything else. Do have a family and we they travel with me when they can. Love my two grandsons and spend as much time with them as I can and blessed. Um I'm the favorite person to play golf with at my club because everyone can beat me. So I'm the sure thing. Um, but I do try to get out occasionally and and play with some of my buddies. Uh, and I do, we have a, a home still up in the, the mountains in, in Colorado and I love Colorado. And so we're going to open up another office there and I'll have the fortune of working out of there and working out of LA and working out of New York. So my job is my passion. I do enjoy my job, but it's hard work. And um, I'm not that good at golf, so I think I better keep the day job. Okay. You have a long history in sports, and now you're focusing primarily on music. Are you a sports guy or a music guy? Well, we you know we own a sports team. Um, we own the, the Coachella Firebirds with the Kraken, so we're 50-50 partners. It's funny to watch Irving Azoff get enamored by an American hockey league team that he was. We went all the way to the seventh game of the finals and lost in overtime. And he was heartbroken and and was like, how did that happen? I'm like, welcome to sports. That's what sports is. You don't know. 
That's why sports is still the most valuable commodity and the most valuable asset. And they're going for $6 billion because you don't know. It's highly unpredictable and a lot of fun. Um, we're partners with the Kraken. We're partners with the Islanders. So we, we do a lot there. I still have great Jeannie Buss and, and Linda Rambus were kind enough to do a preseason game at our arena at Acrisure. Steve Ballmer, God bless his heart, he's doing a preseason game for us in Seattle. Adam Silver is one of my best professional friends and relationships I have in the industry. I hope they expand one day. If they do, we're going after it in in um, in Las Vegas, and I have phenomenal partners there, and we're excited about the possibilities if that ever occurs. So I'm still heavily involved in sports. Um, we're partners with the greatest sports franchise in the world today that no one will ever guess. It just astounds me that people don't understand the the absolute brilliance of Man City. So City Football Group and us are 50-50 partners with Harry Styles on Co-op Live uh, in Manchester. And I get to spend a fair amount of time with them and went to the championship in Istanbul where they got the trifecta. Huge admirer of that franchise. And they have they grossed more money this past year than any other franchise anywhere in the world. They are the most valuable franchise. Um, we're partners with Fenway Sports and and Tom Warner, who's a dear friend, and and John Henry. So we were fans of the Red Sox and fans of Liverpool and fans of the Penguins. We run PPG Arena, so I'm partners with the Penguins, and we do a lot with them. Uh, we're about to announce another partnership in basketball. We're we're going to be partners with an NBA team. So I am a huge sports fan. Uh, I spend a fair amount of time with Gary Bettman on on new arenas for NHL teams. Um, it's the world that we live in. It's, you know, we live and die with music. We, we enjoy sports in between. And I love being a part of that because it moves people. I always like to say the uniqueness of sports is it's the only industry I know where you wear the name of the community on your uniform. That's pretty damn unique. Um, I didn't have that at the bakery or the deli. And on that note, I'm going to let you go, Tim. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing this time with my audience. And Bob, thank you for allowing all of us to tell our story, allowing us to tell our passion for music. I know you're equally as passionate. Thank you, because normally I, I don't really like spending time talking about me, but I, I love the fact you have a format that makes people so damn comfortable about talking about themselves. Thank you. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsitz. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Farm to store in days, not weeks. That's 80 Acres Farms. Did you know most salads travel over 2,000 miles to reach your plate? But not 80 Acres Farms. Their crisp salad greens and herbs are food less traveled. They stay fresher for longer in your fridge. 
My salad lasts all week long, which means less food waste and easy meal planning. Oh, and did I mention there's zero need to wash these greens? Because 80 Acres Farms uses zero pesticides. Visit 80acresfarms.com to learn more and find their salads and salad kits at your local Harris Teeter. Bring spring color inside this season with Bear Premium Plus paint, starting at just $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bear exclusive color Arrowhead Lake or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass or accent your bedroom with sunrise-inspired colors like coral cloud and dark crimson. Let your creativity bloom this spring with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at just $28.98 a gallon at The Home Depot. How doers get more done.